As Sally said, we're making our way through Lent on this journey as we follow the way of Jesus toward the cross and the resurrection. And uh, the study book is, think of it like a, um, a AAA triptych. It's the travel guide for the journey with Adam Hamilton as our tour guide. And this week, the journey takes us to the mountains. Adam begins by reminding us just how important mountains are in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. For these uh, desert nomads living at or below sea level, mountains were mysterious places, holy places, places where people like Abraham and Moses and Elijah experienced the presence of God and came back down from the mountain to reveal to God's people what God expected of them and how God intended for them to live. And all of that, all of that biblical tradition is in the background of the way Matthew begins the collection of Jesus' teachings that are in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. He opens this way. He went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Matthew is drawing on that whole biblical history of the mountain to say that these words, these teachings of Jesus, should be taken with the same kind of divine authority as the authority that God gave to Moses when he delivered the Ten Commandments. Now, we call it, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It isn't actually one sermon. It's, it's the collection of those core teachings that were at the very center of Jesus' life and ministry, set in this setting to give it that sense of, of authority. And every now and then, I, I've heard somebody say, you know, I'm really not much into religion. I, I just try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. And when I hear somebody say that, I feel like saying, you haven't really read that thing, have you? I mean, really, really. You read these three chapters of Matthew, go home this afternoon, sit down, read it at one reading. won't take you more than 15 or 20 minutes. And, and you'll be surprised at some of the stuff that you'll find in there. I mean, there are, there are passages in the Sermon on the Mount that are beautiful. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. There, there are passages that are reassuring. Your heavenly Father knows your need before you even ask of him. There are some that are patently obvious. No one lights a candle and puts it under a bushel basket. And then there are some that are downright disturbing. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And then some passages just make us wonder if Jesus even has a clue about what it means to live in the kind of world we live in. Love your enemies. 
pray for those who persecute you? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in this Sermon on the Mount. And if, if it doesn't just disturb us a little bit, if it doesn't make us feel uncomfortable, if there, if there aren't things in the Sermon on the Mount that make us scratch our heads and say, how on earth, literally on earth, does Jesus expect to do anything with that, then you just haven't read the Sermon on the Mount at all. It is challenging stuff. I, I got some help for the sermon from uh, Stanley Hauerwas, just retired from Duke Divinity School, one of John Dormoy's professors, one of Danny Bennett's professors. And, and in a sermon that he preached on the Sermon on the Mount, he began in, in his typically caustic, confrontational way by saying, the Sermon on the Mount is unintelligible outside the community of disciples who have committed themselves to follow the way of the kingdom of God revealed in Jesus. Unintelligible outside the community of disciples, which is why Matthew says in the opening verse, he went up on the mountain and his disciples came to him. This Sermon on the Mount is not just sort of generally applicable to the world. It speaks to those who have committed themselves to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I mean, just take a look at it. If, uh, if you remember reading or studying it sometime, it opens up in the fifth chapter with these 12 statements that we call the Beatitudes because they begin with the word blessed. And just, just listen to the way Jesus describes the blessed life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke simply says, blessed are the poor. And we want to say, Jesus, you got to be kidding. I mean, we're all red-blooded American capitalists. We know how it is to be blessed. Blessed is defined by how much you have and how much you own. Blessed are those who mourn. And we want to say, Jesus, uh, we, we, don't, we don't particularly go that way. We really believe the blessed life is to deny or at least to avoid suffering, pain, death. We're certainly not going to sit around crying about it. Blessed are the meek. Wait a minute, Jesus. We live in Florida. We can stand our ground. <laughs> Give Jesus the applause, not me, okay? <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness, Jesus. We don't even know what that is, let alone whether we would be hungry for it. Blessed are the merciful. Come on, Jesus, how far is mercy going to get you in this kind of world? Blessed are the pure in heart. Ah, Jesus, purity is okay, but some days I'd really rather be the wolf of Wall Street. Blessed are the peacemakers. Okay, Jesus, 
We've heard all that nonviolence, peacemaking stuff. Tell that to the folks in Ukraine. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Oh, come on, Jesus. I honor the saints, the martyrs, but I'm sure not about to be one. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Okay, Jesus, that's about as far as I can go. I want people to love me, like me. I'm not about to have them rebuke me or reject me. Ah, ah, there's there's no way around it. Jesus' description of what it means to be blessed, to live under the reign and rule of God, to be a part of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven runs directly against the grain of some of the most commonly held assumptions of our culture and our world. And, and there is no reason to expect that a sin-broken, self-absorbed, violence-addicted world is ever going to buy into that stuff. The Sermon on the Mount is unintelligible unless it is heard within a community of disciples who have committed themselves to follow Jesus in the way and the will of God revealed as the kingdom of God and who support each other, hold each other accountable, guide each other along the way. Maybe the word would be, don't, don't try the Sermon on the Mount on your own. It lives in community with others. Harawas also said that the Sermon on the Mount makes no sense if you separate it from the messenger who delivered it, separated from Jesus. These are not sort of abstract principles. They are not religious rules. They are not sort of universal precepts that can be applied anywhere and to any culture. These words of the Sermon on the Mount only make sense in the context of a life that is committed to a growing, maturing relationship with Jesus Christ. There is absolutely no way to take these words seriously outside of the life, death, and resurrection of the one who in his own life embodied it and lived it. Uh, the way I would say that, to be just as contentious as I can, would be to say, if, if what the New Testament says about Jesus is not true, if he is not the Son of God, if he is not the Word made flesh, if he is not the kingdom of God in human life and relationships, then the Sermon on the Mount is nothing but idealistic gibberish. It is some sort of fanciful dream of a world somewhere else that is totally unrelated to the world in which we live. But if, if Jesus is who the New Testament says he is, if he is, in fact, the suffering servant who on the cross takes into himself all of this world's rebellion against the way and will of God. 
if he is the Christ whom God raised from the dead, if he is the living Lord who by his Spirit is alive among his people, if you believe with John in the apocalypse that one day the kingdoms of this earth will in fact become the kingdoms of our God and he will reign forever and ever. If you agree with St. Paul that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then the Sermon on the Mount becomes nothing less than the flesh and blood picture of who God calls us to be and what God intends to do with our lives and with the world in which we live. It becomes the divine portrait of just who God calls us to be. So maybe the word is, don't try the Sermon on the Mount outside of a growing life of discipleship in which our lives are being shaped into the likeness of Jesus. Uh, the worst thing we can do is uh, turn the Sermon on the Mount into a collection of religious rules or abstract principles toward which we are never capable of living. The best thing we can do is to see these words as the description of what it looks like for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done on earth in us as it will one day be fulfilled in the whole of creation. Our, our hope is not in some rigid, slavish following of some rule. Our hope is in living obedience to the one who spoke these words and the one who lived them, the one who died and was raised from the dead to confirm that they are the word of God for us. And that brings me to the single most disturbing thing I know about the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is. Jesus really expects us to do it. Now, if that isn't just a little bit unsettling, the text is clear. Jesus expects his disciples to live this way, to actually do what Jesus said. Not just to try, but to do. Which, for Star Wars fans, immediately brings to mind this moment in the original Star Wars movie. Always with you what cannot be done. Hear you nothing that I say. You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. To live into the Sermon on the Mount, we have to unlearn what we have learned. There is no try, only do. 
which is exactly where Matthew ends up. The coup de grace, the final hit in his collection of these teachings, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in the seventh chapter of Matthew is what we heard read this morning, this, this parable that every child can remember and sing about the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. But listen again in the context of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole to the way Matthew ends it, this time from the paraphrase, The Message by Eugene Peterson. Knowing the correct password, saying, Master, Master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my Father wills. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements on your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build your life on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, the tornado hit, but nothing moved that house because it was fixed on the rock. But if you use my words in a Bible study and don't work them into your life, you are like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When the storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. And then Matthew records the disciples' response to the sermon. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was teaching. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. And may the one who spoke these words, the one who lived these words, by the power of his spirit, speak them deeply into our lives and empower us to live them too. Let us pray.